Beloved, it is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, and so it is a glorious thing to gather uh, in our meeting this morning in a nation that no longer does codify Road vs. Wade. Casey Planned Parenthood has been overturned by the Supreme Court, and states are now free to execute justice in their own borders. Um, it is a glorious thing for which we should give thanks and continue to pray. Uh, it's also, I just want to submit to you a symptom, the, the a commitment that so many in our country have toward the freedom, so-called, to commit abortion, to kill the children that are conceived in the womb, is a symptom of a much deeper problem in our nation's um, outlook on life, the way we think about individual freedom. And we, our, our assumptions about freedom, now, they didn't always, but now in modern day, assume the, uh, the idea that we should be able to do whatever we want, whenever we want, as long as we don't hurt somebody else. And nothing will bind you from doing what you want, like the connections of a family. Those un, you know, unchosen obligations that knit you together and obligate you to other people. And because we're radically committed to that individual freedom, one of the ways that manifests is this awareness that children bind us together and limit our freedoms. And so if we can uh, convince ourselves that it is okay to stop those lives before they bind us, then we can pursue what we think is freedom. And that impulse to think what we know best to be free, how to best to be free, is not unique to America. And that is a problem sinners have been struggling with since the fall into sin. And Jeremiah will confront that today as we open to Jeremiah chapters 2 through 6. The idea that Israel, he's confronting Israel, Jerusalem, and Judah, and the way that they want to have freedom on their own terms and he will try to show them, and I will try to show us, and by God's grace, if we are faithful as Christians and God is kind, we can be witnesses in our communities. <laughs> that there is no freedom apart from being bound to the Lord. There is no freedom apart from being bound to the Lord. Not true freedom. So we're going to be in Jeremiah, and we're going to try to cover chapters 2 through 6 today. I mentioned last week, Jeremiah is the longest book in the Bible all of Jeremiah together is longer than the 12 prophets that end the Old Testament. Uh, and so uh, we're going to try to cover it in sort of its big picture, um, big chunks. Chapters, chapters 2 through 6, which means we're not going to be able to read the whole thing today out loud. Why Gerald uh, urged you, and I would urge you to. Uh, you can look in the bulletin, look at next week's text. You can read ahead so you can get exposure to all that Jeremiah said. Um, but today we'll look at 2 through 6, see the big picture, and... and the message the Lord has for his people is that we can be bound to the Lord or bound for destruction. Those are our options. We can be bound to God, united to him in covenant, or we can be bound for destruction. But there is no sense in which we can be free to live our own lives and it go well. So, uh, like I said, we won't read the whole thing, but let me just, just give an overview. We'll work through uh, chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. And we'll think about how Israel has deserted the Lord. If you're looking at the ESV, sorry, I didn't say it, but it's on page 627 in your pew Bibles. And we will be looking at it together, so take your Bibles and open to Jeremiah chapter 2, 627 in those pew Bibles. Uh, chapter 2, most in the beginning of chapter 3, we'll look at de desertion. Israel has deserted the Lord. And then the rest of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4, we'll look at God's call to return. They've deserted him, but he will call them back to himself. Uh, and then from chapter 5, 6, 7, we'll see uh, what will happen, the, the threat that they won't return, the end of chapter 4 through the end of chapter 6, and so what they can expect is devastation. So desertion, return, devastation, 
as the movement of these chapters through Jeremiah, we consider that we can, we really, we want to, my urge for us is that we would then delight, beloved, that God has bound us to himself and that we are bound to him. And that when we have this urge to be free from his rule, we will recognize that as the destructive urge that it is so that we can learn to be happily submitted to God. And seeing as we sing in Psalm 119 that God is our portion. He is our best good. And being committed to and bound to him is the way to life. So we can be bound to the Lord or bound for destruction. And Israel is running hard in the other way in Jeremiah chapter 2 through chapter 3 verse 5. So the first point is desertion. Uh, and I want to say freedom isn't free. Freedom isn't free. Um, chapter 2, 1 through chapter 3, 5. Now, you hear that. I hear that. I know it. I'm trying to summarize it real condensed. So freedom isn't free, which we use in America to mean somebody had to pay for your freedom. But what I mean by that right now is that freedom from God isn't really freedom. What you think is freedom, what we naturally think is freedom, isn't really free. So chapter 2 is delivered. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, and that's Jeremiah, saying, go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. <clears throat> so God gives Jeremiah a message for the capital city in verse 1. But it's a message that concerns all the tribes of Jacob. You see that in verse 4. Hear the word of the Lord, house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. So just to remind us where we are in history, Jeremiah began his prophecy in the reign of King Josiah. That was long after the kingdom had split. David, David Saul established a kingdom. David and God established David's throne. David's son Solomon reigned over a united monarchy, Israel, all the tribes of Israel together. But then immediately after Solomon died and Rehoboam, David's grandson, took over, the kingdom split. Most of the tribes deserted David's throne, abandoned David's dynasty, went their own way, established their own sites of worship. They stopped going to make sacrifices at the temple. Uh, so the northern tribes split off, and the northern tribes then from then on are known as Israel. And David's kingdom is reduced to just Judah, some of Benjamin, and then the tribe of Simeon that had sort of dispersed among them. <clears throat> so at Jeremiah's day, there's two kingdoms, Israel and Judah. Uh, what's interesting is that Israel has long since ceased to be a nation. <clears throat> Under um, Isaiah's prophecy, a century earlier, Assyria had come in, a couple centuries earlier, had come in and destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. So that northern kingdom is no more as a kingdom. And yet, God sends Jeremiah with a message to them, to all the tribes of Israel. Whether they're still in Jerusalem, whether they're scattered across the world, with this message. And that message is, uh, they have deserted the Lord. It starts by reminding them in verses 2 and 3 of the years right after the Exodus. Chapter 2, verse 2. Uh, Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Remembering the wilderness wanderings between Egypt and Canaan. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. So when other nations tried to attack Israel, disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. Now, you know the story that Israel in the wilderness had its problems. Right? That first generation was rebellious in a lot of ways. Um, but they never... And they talked about abandoning the Lord, but they never actually did. So they would make noise about making a new leader and going back to Israel, but then God would come and remind them and discipline them and instruct them. Um, and so they never did. They wandered in the wilderness as God had uh, condemned them until the second generation, which may be particularly who God is thinking about here, was entirely faithful under Joshua, 
obeyed the Lord, entered the promised land, and was the first fruits of uh, God as a nation. And yet, by Josiah's day, they have, they have abandoned the Lord. So look at verses 5 through 8. Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? They did not say, where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through where no man dwells? Like they, didn't, they didn't remember that God had done this. He was able to provide for them. Verse 7, I brought them into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priests did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handled the law did not know me. The shepherds, which is a way to refer to the kings and governors, the shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. So by Jeremiah's day, from a young, faithful bride in Israel, they have abandoned him and have run to other gods. So in verse 13, he switches imagery from the sort of bridal imagery to the imagery of water sources. My people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn out sisters, cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So God is a fountain of living waters. He's a constant supply of life and cleanliness. And Israel's like, ah, we don't want to do that. We're going to dig our own wells. Not even wells, just pits. Cisterns are, you know, uh, pits you dig to store water, store runoff. So they've abandoned a fresh-flowing, perpetual stream for a playa lake and a leaky one at that. They can't even hold the water they're hoping to draw from. That reality is the, that's the reality that, that false gods, that is the reality of false gods. They're leaky cisterns. They can't keep their promises. They can't deliver on the hope they promise. For Israel, particularly in uh, Josiah's day, that false hope was political alliances. So if you look at verse 18, keeping that water imagery, God says, now what do you gain by going to Egypt to drink the waters of the Nile? Or what do you gain by going to Assyria to drink the waters of the Euphrates? Uh, so Egypt uh, is to their south, Assyria is to their north. Those are the massive powers in Israel's day. Ever since Solomon, Israel as a kingdom has been shrinking. Judah has been shrinking in influence and ability. And so as Egypt grows in power, as Assyria grows in power and conquers the northern kingdom, uh, Israel begins to panic. Judah's kings begin to panic. And they think, what, what can we do to keep ourselves safe? And instead of asking, as we saw, where is the Lord? What is God's will? How should we live? They start running back and forth between the powers of the day. Let's make an alliance with Egypt. Let's make an alliance with Assyria. Let's make an alliance with whoever we think can be strong enough to protect us. Back and forth, back and forth. Instead of looking, where is the Lord? They yoke themselves to the powers around them, which in the ancient world required acknowledging their gods. You could not make a treaty with Egypt without acknowledging Egypt's gods to be the strong gods. You could not make a treaty with Assyria without acknowledging Assyria's gods to be the strong gods. So it's more than just political alliances. It's religious abandonment. They've abandoned the Lord. They're not asking him and taking matters into their own hands. And so verse 14, backing up just a little, God asks, is Israel a slave? Is he a homeborn servant? And the answer to that is no. Israel's a son. God is their father. Which we did a great job on Sunday school, just meditating on the adult class. 
That's how it's supposed to be. But Israel has abandoned him, and so now they're a prey. They're not protected like a son because they've turned their back on their father. They're taking matters in their own hands. They want to be free. Verse 20, God says, long ago, I broke your yoke. That's rescue from Egypt. Rescued you from slavery. I burst your bonds, right? I gave you freedom. But you said, Israel, I will not serve. He he took them from, you know, in Egypt's day under Moses, the, the superpower of the day broke them out of slavery, made them his son, took them by covenant into a relationship with himself. And the word covenant is a a relationship that creates a family-like bond where there wasn't one. So we can think of it here in uh, this image in uh, verse 14. It's adoption. You're my son. We saw already he's used the bridal imagery. Israel's like a bride. There's a family relationship there that wasn't there before when God obligates himself to his people and his people obligated to him. But they want free. They, want, they don't want that anymore. They said, I won't serve. I'm not serving you. But they're living in denial about all that. So look at verse 23a. Sorry, look at verse 23. Uh, he, he looks at Israel and says, how can you say I'm not unclean? I have not gone after the Baals. So they're like protesting back to God. We're not unfaithful. We haven't stopped our temple sacrifices. Right? The northern kingdom, those people, they set up alternate shrines. But we in Judah and Jerusalem, we're still doing temple worship. We're still offering sacrifices at the, the temple Solomon built on the altar that, that you proclaimed. We haven't put a Baal idol in the place of the Ark of the Covenant. But God says, but look at your way in the valley. Back in verse 23, right? Israel says, How can, I'm not unclean. I haven't gone after the Baals. I haven't gone after these false idols. And God says, yeah, but look at your way in the valley. Know what you've done. So that's the image of, so you're on the temple mount offering sacrifices. See, not idol worshipers. And he says, yeah, but what about when you go back off the mountain? So Jerusalem's mostly built in in valleys at this point, right? It's built up. What about your day-to-day life? Look at that. What about when you're not at church? When you're not at home group? What does your actual life, your actual behavior look like? We should listen to God's instruction here and assess our own lives in the same way. Uh, Don't mainly assess your walk with the Lord by your emotional engagement at church. Are you moved by the songs? I think you should be moved by the songs. I think the theology we sing and the songs that we join our voices with should move us. But just because you have an emotional response to the songs does not mean that you are being faithful to the Lord. You shouldn't even assess your uh, spiritual life mainly by disciplines, whether that's, you know, your private disciplines of hearing and praying or your discipline of gathering with the church to worship. We should be pursuing those things because people who do love the Lord, love his word and delight in it, pray to him, gather as his people. But that's not the main way we should be asking, like, how am I doing spiritually? The main way you want to ask, assess your spiritual health is by your day-to-day behavior. Are you righteous and just and true with your wife or your husband? your children or your parents, or your co-workers or your bosses or your clients? Are you angry, scared, stressed, and worried? Maybe better to say it, when you are angry, scared, stressed, and worried, where do you go? How do you handle those things? Do you run to the fountain of living water? 
Or do you try to hew out your own systems? Find resources in the, in the world uh, that you try to soothe your soul and find security. Do you get stressed or angry and re- remember God's word and call Christian friends and bring the promises of God's grace to mind and ask for encouragement and prayer? Or do you handle those stressors by inst- indulging the desires of the flesh? When you get stressed, do you just run to eating or sex or shopping or temper tantrums, anger outbursts, alcohol, gossip, slander? I mean, we've got all kinds of ways that we try to soothe our souls in the midst of a world that is hard to live in, full of grief and tragedy, uh, uncertain, and shifting under our feet, which is Israel's case. I think we mentioned that last week, right? Jeremiah is prophesying in probably the most tumultuous period in the southern kingdom's existence, from Josiah's reforms all the way to Zedekiah's destruction by Babylon. Where do you run? In Israel's case, that assessment should have opened their eyes to their betrayal. It should have opened them up to realize we are slaves of our own passions. That's what God's image. Multiple of them, I think I'm going to read the tamest one. Uh, but keep looking at verse 23. He says, look at your way in the valley, know what you've done. A restless young camel running here and there, a wild donkey used to the wilderness, in her heat, sniffing the wind. Who can restrain her lust? None who seek her need worry themselves in her month. They'll find her. She's just a donkey in heat, looking for a mate. And those mates don't have to work very hard because she's going after them. Slaves to their passions. Which is, I think, a good description of America. And a good description of ourselves and our flesh. So Israel does confess, right? That at verse 23, they say, we're not unclean. We haven't gone after the Baals. And by uh, verse 25... Uh, he says, keep your feet from going on shod and your throat from thirst. That's, that's an image. It's coming, right? Keep, keep yourselves from slavery. But you said, that's hopeless. I have loved foreigners. After them, I'll go. I'm addicted, basically. That's my translation. I'm addicted. This is what we do. We look to these things. Don't we know? That's how the world works. Isn't it shocking? I mean, it really is shocking, beloved, how we who love the Lord and know his mercy and grace and understand who Jesus is and have the presence of the Holy Spirit still so quickly find it easy to neglect the Lord and find comfort in all the worldly things. And if it's another, we, as if we needed another sort of craving of the flesh, right? Our smartphones have become a whole, a whole other thing. I think those experts, I heard this, somebody can check me and correct me, but it's like two minutes, is the average amount of time before your brain says, hey, pick that thing up again. Two minutes. Maybe it's a little longer. Maybe it's 20 for you. Tw- 20 minutes. Because you just, the blue light and the addiction and the way they wire the thing, it's just a, it's a thing we do now. We, we need the dopamine hit. How easy it is that we, we just have these cravings of the flesh. And so for Israel... They've abandoned him. And so basically God's judgment on them is what Paul says in Romans 1. Fine, I'll leave you to it. You want them, you can have them. He says in verse 26, A thief is shamed when caught. The house of Israel will be shamed. That means they're going to get caught. Their kings and their officials, their priests and their prophets, who say to a tree, you're my father, and to a stone, you gave me birth. They've turned their back to me and not their face. But at the time of their trouble, 
They say, arise and save us. Yeah. Get really, really at the end of our rope and we, oh God, come fix this. In verse 28, but where are your gods that you made for yourselves? Let them get up if they can save you in your time of trouble. You can see how bad it is here. As many as your cities are your gods, O Judah. There's more in this chapter, but the point's clear, right? Despite what they say with their lips, their hearts are far from him. So at chapter 3, verse 4 and 5, he says, Have you not just now called me my father, you who are the friend of my youth? Will he be angry forever? Will he be indignant to the end? Right? They sound like they're praying a pious prayer, but in the verse 5, the whole spoken, spoken. But you've done, you've done all that he thought you could. Their lips, their lips praise God, but their hearts are far from him. They've abandoned him. They'll leave them to their true idols. And you might think that's the end of it. I mean, particularly the way that the Lord uses the bridal imagery, that he might act like a typical earthly husband would act, whose wife was persistently and relentlessly adulterous and be done with her. But you'd be wrong. You'd be wrong. This God who has taken his people to himself by covenant, watches them abandon him and says, hey, come back. Your freedom isn't really free, but you can always return. So point two, that's chapter 3, 6 through 4, 4, is return. Failure isn't final. Your failure isn't final. My failure isn't final. Israel's failure isn't final. Or at least, to give it a little more nuance, doesn't have to be final. It doesn't have to be final. You can sin as badly as Israel, and still the Lord will say return. So now look at chapter 3, verse 6. Uh, this is a new setting. The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah. This is very early in Jeremiah's ministry. Uh, have you seen what she did, that faithless one, Israel? And he's talking about the northern tribes, the tribes that abandoned him, set up false worship, and now are gone. Have you seen what she did, that faithless one, Israel, how she went up on every high hill and under every green tree, and there played the whore? And I thought, after she's done all this, she'll return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah, which is still a kingdom, right, when Jeremiah is prophesying, her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one, Israel, I sent her away with a decree of divorce. That's the Assyrian exile. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear. But she too went and played the whore. Because she took him lightly. She polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. Yet for all her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense. So we have a, we have a conversation now with Jeremiah and the Lord. And Jeremiah's explaining, the Lord is explaining to Jeremiah, hey, if you consider what's going on, the northern kingdom, how she committed idolatry, rampant idolatry, and I sent the Assyrians, they took her away, and yet the kingdom where you live, Jerusalem and Judah, didn't see and learn their lesson. Now, in Josiah's day, King Josiah did. I mentioned this last week, but King Josiah has got the best track record of any king in Jerusalem after Solomon. Well, maybe even include Solomon. Uh, he... He says he, they discover the book of the law. Josiah goes on a crusade to get rid of all idolatry. He does formal reforms from the top. And the Lord's word to Jeremiah is there in verse 10. She did not return to me with her whole heart, but only in pretense. She's a hypocrite. Josiah is making these public reforms, but the people, the people haven't changed. And 
the more we get in Jeremiah, the more we'll see. They are still practicing idolatry in secret. They've just taken their unfaithfulness underground. And so God gives this amazingly surprising verdict. He's, just a reminder, right? He's, he's already sent the northern kingdom into exile because of their relentless idolatry. And Judah is now playing the hypocrite with some formal reforms, but not changing their hearts. And so now, verse 11, the Lord says, Faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. So outright apostasy is better than hypocrisy. Neither of them are pleasing to the Lord. But when the Lord weighs these two options, at least Israel was honest about their unfaithfulness. Judah's trying to cover it up with some sort of band-aid as if God can't see. And they think because they're still doing the formal worship, the people have this confidence that they're going to be able to persist. So treacherous, faithless, our faithless Israel is more righteous than treacherous Judah. And then, verse 12, God sends Jeremiah to proclaim these words toward the north, toward those kingdoms that are now dispersed. Presumably because, one, they'll be written down and dispersed. We have them today. So maybe those exiles from Israel will hear this. And also, so Judah can overhear. How will God speak to these northern tribes that have been taken away for their idolatry? Verses 12 and 13. Go to proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt, that you rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree, and that you have not obeyed my voice, declared the Lord. He says it again, return, O faithless children, declares the Lord, for I am your master. I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. Even now, it's not too late. Your failure, bad failure, awful failure, I mean, Kind of uncomfortable to read out loud, probably uncomfortable to hear read out loud. Failure is not so bad that God will not be merciful. Are you feeling that way today? Some sin that you have committed, that you struggle with, some plaguing thought, some persistent doubt about God's goodness, some action that's hidden is disqualifying you from the mercy of God. Your failure need not be final. If you will, return. Return. In verse 21, we have a a model of what repentance would look like. So, second, verse 21, I understand this to be God explaining to Jeremiah what this would look like so he could sort of talk this out. Like, if you guys follow this model... This is what returning looks like. So verse 21, a voice on the bare heights is heard, the weeping and pleading of Israel's sons. Okay, the bare heights are where they were doing their idolatry. We know that from the surrounding context. That's where they were making their idolatrous worship. And they're still there. They're on the bare heights, still in the place of idolatry, which is ironic because the uh, idolatry is like fertility idolatry. They're, they want fruitfulness and rain and crops and those heights where they're doing this are bare, right, fruitless. But that's where they are. They're still there, and they're weeping, and they're pleading because they've perverted their way. That's where they are. They've forgotten their God. 
And so then, in verse 22, when they're still doing idolatry, God says, return, faithless sons, I'll heal your, I will heal your faithlessness. God moves with the initiative and says, come back. And so verse 22, uh, the second half there, behold, we come to you. They listen. This is what it would look like to repent. Behold, we come to you, for you are the Lord our God. Truly, the hills are a delusion. The orgies on the mountains, truly, the Lord, in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. So they acknowledge God to be true and their idols are a lie. Right? They're, not, they're not calling out to him like, we love our idols, but come get us out of this problem. That's how chapter 3 verse 5 was. Right? When, when they sounded like they were pleading to God for salvation, they were wanting him to get them out of trouble, but they were still doing all the evil they could. This is what repentance looks like when you say, yes, this thing that we're doing is and worthless, and we want you, and you is salvation. So they acknowledge their sin, and then turn away from it back to God. And then, in verse 24, they experience remorse over it. From our youth, this is, they're just acknowledging their honesty. From our youth, the shameful thing, that's idols and idolatry, this shameful thing has devoured all for which our fathers labored. Their flocks and their herds, their sons and their daughters. Let us lie down in our shame. Let our dishonor cover us. For we've sinned against the Lord God, we and our fathers, from our youth even to this day, and we've not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. Remorse, lament, and grief. They don't just want out of trouble. They acknowledge this way we've been living, it's shameful. This way we've been living when exposed to the light, it should invite judgment. That's repentance. Not just get me out of hell but I want you what we say in Psalm 119 the Lord is my portion when you realize that like he's my good and his ways are right and every way I'm inclined or tempted or have actually walked in disobedience to him is wicked and shameful and I want it gone that's repentance that's the gospel that's the call of the gospel when we when we as Christians say you know Jesus has died for our sins and risen from the grave and is reigning over all of heaven and earth. Come to him and find rest. This is how you have to come, repenting of your sins. Your failures need not be final, and they will not be final if you come confessing them as failures. And sins against the holy God, not just mistakes. It didn't pan out this time. But rebellions against the one who made you and loves you. But if you do that, there is limitless mercy <clears throat> and hope beyond what you could imagine. Because what God offers to his people here is not just a reset. I mean, sometimes we think that'd be enough. I've done these awful things. If we could just get back to square one. But God promises that on the other side of repentance, it's even better. This is, this is crazy amazing, particularly if you think about the context where Jeremiah is in Jerusalem with the temple. Look at chapter 3, verse 15. If they repent, right? If they return, as he said at the beginning of the chapter, he says, I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding, which we can say now, looking back, ultimately, Jesus. <laughs> and when you have multiplied and been fruitful in the land in those days, declared the Lord, they will no more say the ark of the covenant of the Lord. Right? That, that's the the box, it was made, gilded with gold. The Ten Commandments were inside. It was in the most holy place. It was the footstool of God's throne, symbolically. It was the symbol that God was reigning among them, and he was their king. 
And what God is saying is if you, you know, they've been scattered to the nations. If you repent and return from your idolatry, you will come to Jerusalem and they will no longer say the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. Why? Because at that time, Jerusalem will be called the throne of the Lord. Not just the Holy of Holies in the temple. My gosh, I've done that like three weeks now. Not just the Holy of Holies in the temple is where the Lord reigns, but all the city, which we can now look from Revelation 22 and see when John sees the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, he measures it as a cube, which I don't know if you've ever realized that, but that's the, that's the dimensions of the Holy of Holies, which is what God is showing John, that the whole new Jerusalem is holy. That's where God reigns, everywhere in the new creation. It's not just a reset to what you abandoned before. It's even better when you come back. The whole city will be holy. And for we, on this side of the resurrection, we can say the whole new earth, the new heavens will be holy. That's what we get when we come back and admit and confess our sins and repent. Not just reset to try again. That would be no good. We'd just blow it again. But it'll be better. It'll be glorious. In fact, then it even gets amplified because in chapter 4, he turns then from talking to Israel, the scattered tribes, to the north, to 4 verse 3. He turns back to Judah and Jerusalem that's still there because they're supposed to be listening to what Jeremiah says towards the north and responding themselves. So he says to Jerusalem and Judah, you break up your fallow ground, don't sow among thorns, circumcise yourselves to the Lord, remove the foreskin of your hearts, men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth and burn with none to quench it. I have gone too far. Back up. If you return, declares the Lord, not only will you swear as the Lord lives, verse 2, in truth and in justice and righteousness, the nations will bless themselves in him. Sorry. Wow. The nations will come. Right? Not just will Israel be restored from the nations, but all the nations will come in chapter 4, verse 2. Which is us. I mean, this is us coming to worship the Lord because of the glorious promise he's made. Failure isn't final if you don't refuse repentance. No matter how bad you think the failure is. No matter how shameful you know it to be. That's the whole point. You've got to admit that it's shameful. And that failure isn't final if you don't refuse repentance. And I think the only thing that can help us to not refuse repentance because it hurts. God, it's so painful to say, oh, look at this shameful thing. Oh. Is to know that God is trustworthy and it's going to be better. The hope on the other side of repentance is better than what you lost with your sin. Union with Christ. Confidence in his goodness. Uh, because like every marriage that goes through conflict, when you persevere through the conflict, your roots grow deeper. Because now you trust each other. And we're like, oh, we had that fight, and she repented of her sin, and I repented of my sin, and we're able to do that together, and so you, you grow stronger. And over and over again, right? When you do that with your parents and parenting, your friends and relationships, you get the, 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 the trial of shared trauma together, and then you realize that it grows your muscles of trust and encouragement and uh, honesty with each other. It gets stronger and better. So failure isn't final. And the, th the thing to remember, I think we see in this picture between Israel and Judah, is that Israel is the ones who have abandoned the Lord and they've turned away. So maybe you're not a Christian, you've never embraced the Lord as your faithful Savior and turned to God, or, or maybe you have, or you know somebody who has and has walked away. 
they're supposed, they're to, supposed to deter and return. The solution, solution for, them for them is to repent, is to repent, is to repent and trust Jesus. Judah, Judah is like somebody, maybe of us, who went through that, went through that first point of desertion, desertion and feel, and feel the pangs of our conscience and recognize the ways that we still in our flesh run to cisterns that don't hold water. But we haven't walked away from the Lord. I mean, you're here on a Sunday, baptized into Christ. And you, you see this in you. And, and we're in the place of Judah where we can still, before devastation comes, we can repent. But you see, it doesn't matter whether the devastation's already come or whether it's something that you, know, you fear in the future. The, the, the solution is the same. You repent. You just return. You confess your sin. You're honest to God. You receive his mercy that he purchased for us, the death of his son in our place. So you don't have to figure out whether you're Israel or Judah. You don't have to figure out whether your heart's been hardened by sin and you're not ever a Christian or, or you're really a Christian but you have this persistent struggle. The, the response is the same no matter what. When the Lord convicts you of sin, you come and repent. Because your failure is never final if you don't refuse repentance. We know and the Lord knows that Judah isn't listening. Judah won't repent. And so the rest of chapters 4, 5, and 6 warn them that if they won't sincerely be bound to the Lord, they are bound for destruction. If they won't be sincerely bound to the Lord, they are bound for destruction. So the third, third topic here, devastation. Um, what is final is fair. What is final is fair. God will do justice. And when he brings his judgment, it will be what we all deserve. So chapter 4, verse 5 through 8. Disaster's coming. Declare in Judah, proclaim in Jerusalem, and say, Blow the trumpet through the land, cry aloud and say, Assemble, let's get to the fortified cities. Raise a standard towards Zion, flee for safety, stay not, for I bring disaster from the north and great destruction. A lion has gone up from his thicket. That's Babylon in the, in the image of a lion. A lion has gone up from his thicket. A destroyer of nations has set out. He has gone out from his place to make your land a waste. Your cities in ruins without inhabitant. For this, put on sackcloth, lament, and fierce anger of the Lord has not turned back from us. Devastation is coming. That's the warning. If you don't return, here's what's happening. And God knows they won't. So in verse 9, chapter 4, verse 9, all of the elites are surprised when it happens. In that day, declares the Lord, courage will fail, king and officials. The priests shall be appalled and the prophets astounded. Which should be surprising, because if they would just listen to Jeremiah, they wouldn't, right? Like, that's part of the point. God is warning them way before it happens. And yet still when it happens, they're going to be shocked. What? We didn't see this coming. But, but here, so before it happens in verse 10, what we see more surprisingly and maybe encouraging for us is that Jeremiah himself is shocked. <laughs> Look at verse, chapter 4, verse 10. Then I said, that's Jeremiah, in the wake of this destruction, Jeremiah says, oh, Lord God, surely you have utterly deceived this people. You just called God a liar. That's his first response to Babylon's coming, right? God, that can't be fair. That can't be right. You've lied to these people. Now, <clears throat> what's Jeremiah thinking? I, I assume Jeremiah is taking from the same sources that the false prophets of his day are taking from, places like Jeremiah 6.14, <clears throat> where there are prophets that are saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. God had promised Abraham offspring that would endure forever, that would bless the nations. God had promised David a throne on which someone would sit forever, which is the throne in Jerusalem, right? God had promised that Jerusalem would survive, survive a Syrian invasion, which it did. And so with all of this promise, particularly, I think, the promise of David's descendant on his throne, 
Everyone in Jerusalem was just telling each other, don't worry, nothing can happen to us. I mean, the rest of the nation might get wiped out, but Jerusalem's secure because we've got this promise. And it seems like Jeremiah's first response is the same thing. Like, that's not fair. That's not right. Surely you're lying. And so what God does, because he is a good father who teaches his children, is all through four through six, he makes his case. He explains how he's not lying. He doesn't say, fine, you're out, Jeremiah. What do you mean I'm a liar? Get out of here. You can't be my prophet. No. He explains. He defends. He shows. And so all of these chapters, four, five, and six, are a mix of those, those realities. God promising devastation, uh, explaining and defending why he's sending this devastation, and then we get Jeremiah's experience. So I'm just, just so you know, we're running through this pretty quick because uh, it's very repetitive. But we, we saw in chapter 4, verse 5, we're under the walled cities. In chapter 4, verse 15, we have a voice declaring in Dan, which is the far north, besiegers come. And then as the passage marches on, the warnings get closer and closer. So in chapter 6, the warning is now in Benjamin, Tekoa, Bethaharim, which are all right around Jerusalem. So if you're listening, you know, as you're reading through Jeremiah 4, 5, and 6, the warnings just get closer to Jerusalem. Every time God mentions them, but destroy the city, it's getting closer and closer and closer. Um, but God gives in the middle of it, gives Jeremiah a vision of the aftermath. So we'll just look at chapter 4, 23. And Jeremiah gives his vision. I looked on the earth, and behold, it was without form and void. That should make you think Genesis, right? The earth was formless and void. And in Genesis, God regularly looked and saw, and it was good. And Jeremiah is going to see the opposite. I looked on the earth and look. Behold, it was without form and void into the heavens. They had no light. I looked on the mountains and behold, they were quaking and all the hills moved to and fro. I looked and behold, there was no man. All the birds of the air had fled. I looked and behold, the fruitful land was a desert. All its cities laid in ruins before the Lord, before his fierce anger. That's a deliberate echo showing the decreation of the land. God's judgment brings devastation. It's awful. Then he gives the explanations. So there's lots of explanations. Again, we'll just look at one. Let's look at chapter 5. And here I think uh, God is giving his explanation particularly to Jeremiah. He tells Jeremiah, run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. Look and take note. Right? So God had said devastation's coming. Jeremiah said, no way, that can't be right. So God sends Jeremiah to go inspect. Look and take note in Jerusalem. Search her squares to see if you can find a man, one, one, who does justice and seeks truth, that I may pardon her. If you know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, when God went to judge Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham had a prayer meeting with God and said, and God said, you know, if I can find ten righteous people, I'll spare the cities. And here God looks at Jeremiah and says, just find me one. Jeremiah, just find one. And I'll pardon her. And here's Jeremiah's conclusion, verse 2. Though they say, as the Lord lives, they swear falsely. He sees it. They're using the right words. Their heart's not in it. Lord, don't your eyes look for truth? You've struck them down, but they felt no anguish. You've consumed them. They test. They refuse to take correction. They've made their faces harder than rock. They refused to repent. Jeremiah sees. He has a close inspection. Like, yeah, not a one. And then he does this, this funny, not funny, tragic thing. He says, well, "These are only the poor. They have no sense." Right? He's trying really hard. He's like, well, these are all the illiterate masses who just are too busy to think about God. They don't know the way of the Lord and the justice of their God. They don't know their Bibles, is what Jeremiah is saying in verse 4. I'll go to the great. I'll speak to them. They know the way of the Lord, the justice of their God. Let's go talk to the kings, the prophets, the priests. But they all like had broken the yoke and had burst the bonds. 
Therefore, a lion from the forest shall strike him. Jeremiah gets convinced. He, God sends him on an ex, ex, exploration, right? Like, look, go check it out. And he goes from, how can you do this, God, to, yeah, yeah, we do deserve this. What's final is ultimately fair. The judge of all the earth will do right. When Peter, Second Peter, warns, God once deluged the world with water, and by that same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Devastation's coming, and it will be just. And everyone who is still under the wrath of God because of their just sins will get what they deserve. The only way out is because God is merciful and has sent his son to take our place. He can't just wink away sin. The worst thing actually can, he can do is just forgive sin of unrepentant sinners. That's what five, chapter 5, verse 7 says. God asks, how can I pardon you? How can I forgive you? Your children have forgiven, forsaken me and have sworn by those who are no gods. When I did feed them to the full, like when I provided what they needed, they committed adultery. They trooped to the houses of whores. They were well-fed lusty stallions, each neighing for his neighbor's wife. Shall I not punish them for these things? The worst thing God can do is give limitless patience to unrepentant sinners and allow our injustice to go on forever. So he won't. And Jeremiah, as he wrestles with this along the way, goes from God, that's not fair, which you've probably had thoughts about that too, about God's judgment in hell and the wrath that's to come. And upon his close inspection, he joins God in saying, yes, <laughs> their ways and their deeds have brought this on themselves. And so we see chapter 4, verse 19, Jeremiah's response, his own anguish. My anguish, my anguish, I writhe in pain. The walls of my heart, my heart is beating wildly. I cannot keep it silent, for I hear the sound of trumpets, the alarm of war. Crash follows hard on crash, the whole land is laid waste. Suddenly my tents are laid waste, my curtains in a moment, how long must I see? His standard and hear the sound of the trumpet. Jeremiah is in anguish because of the destruction that's coming on his people. And I think that's an essential qualification for us as we bear witness to the truth of God and the judgment to come. We cannot stand aside in self-righteous condemnation. We bring the message, like Jeremiah brought the message, in a faithful solidarity. You and us, we're the same. We are all made in God's image. The world in rebellion and the world that's come to faith in Christ, we were all born deserving judgment. And it is only by the mercy of God that we have any hope, and you can join us in that hope. An essential qualification as we bear witness to God is not that gloating self-righteousness, but a grieving solidarity. All the sins you decry in the world on Sanctity Human Life Sunday, I mean, it's awful to think what's happening in the way that we as a culture so devalue life. And it is easy to think they are wicked. What we must realize is we are them. <laughs> we all live in the same society. We all drink from the same cultural waters. And apart from the grace of God coming and intervening, we would be in the same place. Tearful solidarity. Come, find joy with us because we all should experience this wrath. And God in his mercy has given us Jesus. So that's Jeremiah's experience. 
and he sees what's going on. He can't hold it back. He justifies, he recognizes God is good, and he grieves along with his people and along with the Lord. And so his words will become um, like a refiner's fire. You see that at the very end of chapter 6. God says to Jeremiah, I've made you a tester of metals among my people, that you may know and test their ways. Right? That's, God's going to give Jeremiah's words, God's going to say Jeremiah's words, and God's words in Jeremiah's mouth are going to be like the refining fire to test us, to test his people. They are all stubbornly rebellious, going about with slanders. They are bronze and iron. They act corruptly. And so to refine fire, just to pause there, to refine metals, right? you put it in this intense heat. And that's what verse 29 is. The bellows blow fiercely, and the, the metals are supposed to melt, and the impurities clump together and get burned away, so the metals refine. The lead is consumed by fire, verse 29. But uh, that's what God's word does for us. It refines us, or it's supposed to refine us. But what, what verse 29 says in Israel's case, in Judah's case, is it's for nothing. In vain, the refining goes on because the wicked aren't removed. God continues to send his word, and the people continue to respond with hardness of heart. And so they're exposed as the rebellious idolaters they are. And the word does the same thing for us today. It comes into our lives, and it either burns away the impurities. It exposes our sins and brings us to repentance and teaches us to be holy and drives us to repentance uh, to bringing our sins into the light so they can be burned away by the, by the word of God as he persistently offered throughout these chapters. Or, or, we can break the yoke of God's rule. We can ignore God's word. We can say, I want to do what I want my way. I want to be free from you and we'll find we're actually just enslaved our own passion and will be discarded as worthless. Verse 30, chapter 6, verse 30. Rejected silver, they are called, for the Lord has rejected them. They went after worthlessness, and so they became worthless. And if we go after worthlessness, we become worthless. But in Christ, our failures are not final. They need not be final if we will not refuse repentance, because Jesus took the fire of God's wrath so that we could be refined and made holy. Be bound to the Lord. Trust him. Be united to him. Submit to him. Receive his mercy and grace. Let his word burn away your impurities. Because he's our portion. He's our father. The husband who's made us his bride as a church, given us as a bride to his son Jesus, our shepherd king, so that we could be restored to God. Let's pray together.